to our message for today. Uh, number one, uh, we are going to have a wild game dinner in March, uh, March the 11th. And if you are um, somewhat pink around the collar like me, a little bit redneck, all right, uh, then, um, then you'll want to participate in that. And if you'd like to be involved in that in some way, uh, I'd like you to connect with me. We need to get, it, get organized. Uh, we have our speaker already. Uh, it's Dr. Larry Moyer from Avantel. And uh, Dr. Moyer is the guy who taught me how to share the gospel uh, almost 20 years ago now. And, uh, and if you'd like to learn from that guy, who is a real expert in uh, how to share the gospel with people, uh, there will not only be the Wild Game Dinner, but that he will speak that Sunday morning and then do a couple training seminars uh, after church and then Sunday evening as well. So it's going to be a great event, going to be a lot of fun. Um, uh, and if you are a man or woman who's interested in that kind of thing and helping people come to faith in Christ uh, through that, then, uh, then I would like to talk to you. Uh, also, this afternoon, Carter Losey's Eagle Scout Court of Honor is ha- happening right here. Um, and, um, and this is a family event. Um, you know, this will be about three, what, three o'clock? Three o'clock right here. Um, I'm going to have a little speaking role in it. I won't be the star of the show. That'll be up to Carter. Um, but, um, but this is a family event, and so I encourage you to, to come and support our church family and encourage him. Uh, this is a huge accomplishment. Uh, one of, you know, a very, very small number of scouts ever get through enough of this to, uh, to actually attain their eagle rank. Uh, and this is a big deal. So uh, if you have the opportunity to come and celebrate with them, I think that would be a big encouragement to him and to the Losey family in general. Now, with all that as preface, let me just say this. Today is the beginning of a new sermon series that I'll be doing uh, for the next several weeks. Uh, This is the first message that's unlike any other series I've ever done. Normally what I I do is uh, find a book of the Bible that we haven't gone through yet and go through it a few verses at a time and explain uh, what God is saying to us and what that means for us in our life today. But I'm going to do a series uh, for the next several weeks called The Big Questions, which is designed to answer some of the big questions that people have about the Christian faith. And my purpose in doing it is twofold. Uh, Number one, that first of all, you may be a person who is sitting out there who has some of these big questions about the Christian faith, and you're not sure if you want to buy into this whole notion or not. And if that's you, welcome to Chillicothe Bible Church. We're glad that you're here because this is a place where it is safe to ask questions and to have uh, things that you want to know answers to. There are good answers to all of these questions that you have. And I'm going to try to provide part of them uh, as we are uh, moving through this series. Uh, the other reason is for those of you who are convinced that Christianity is true, uh, we have, as you know, an, a, a goal of sharing the gospel with 2,018 people by the end of the year 2018. And in order to do that, as you are sharing the gospel, you're going to get some questions that come up about, well, what about this? 
And my purpose in doing this series for you is to equip you, because according to the Bible, remember Ephesians, where it says to equip the saints to do the ministry, right? Um, That as you do evangelism, as you share the gospel with people, this is to equip you to give you some answers, some good answers to some common questions that are big that people really do wonder about and want to have answers to. Um, Now, uh, again, let me say this just as an aside, that having questions and investigating the faith that we profess is not a bad thing. Because the Christian faith really can hold up to an intense level of scrutiny if you come to it in an unbiased way. And so I want to address some of these. And the biggest and most fundamental question of all is one I want to address today. How do we know that God is there? How do we know that God exists? And I'm going to try in the next half hour or so to uh, not to say everything that could be said or should be said, because there are literally shelves and volumes full of books that I can point you to that try to answer this question. So I'm not going to succeed in doing that completely in 30 minutes. It's just not going to happen. But what I'm going to try to do is give you some of the most compelling reasons that I personally believe that God exists. And there are lots more But these are the ones that I have personally found compelling in my own thinking. And one of the first reasons that we know that God exists is the complexity of the creation. And there there are a huge number of things that could be said here, uh, but there is vast observable complexity in the creation that we see. Uh, Let me give you just a few examples. First, consider the earth that we live on. Now, we have amazing telescopes now. The, the Hubble Space Telescope is able to look out. You know, they got it up in a sat, on, a, on a rocket launch. They launched this telescope, and they are able to look out and see objects that are 13.2 billion light years away from us. Now, a light year is the distance that light travels in a year at the speed 186,000 miles per second. So 13.2 billion light years away is a ways. Just submit that to you, okay? It's a ways out there. Uh, They can see almost to the edge of the universe. The universe has an edge. It ends somewhere out there. Now, it's again, it's a ways out there. But the universe does have an end, and they can see almost to the end of it. 13.2 billion light years away. But we have yet to locate any planets amidst all of the galaxies that we can find. We have yet to locate any planets that are like ours despite lots of looking. And our planet is the perfect size to sustain an atmosphere composed mostly of nitrogen and oxygen. And if Earth were a little bit bigger, and I'm not talking a lot bigger, I'm talking fractionally bigger than it is, its atmosphere would contain free hydrogen like Jupiter and would make life impossible. If it were smaller, it wouldn't have an atmosphere at all. It would be a planet like Mercury where there is no atmosphere and therefore there's no life because there's nothing for living things to breathe. 
And it's also just the right distance from the sun. If it were fractionally further away, we would all freeze to death. And if it were fractionally closer, we would all burn up. It would be the ultimate in global warming. Uh, <laughs> that's a fact. We are just exactly the right distance away from a star the size of our sun to neither burn up nor freeze, but to maintain a temperate climate sustainable for life and an atmosphere with just the right size to have an atmosphere that allows uh, nitrogen and oxygen to be the majority of the universe, of the atmosphere around it. Um, it and it would appear to an outside observer that our planet is custom designed to support life, as it in fact does. Because if, despite lots and lots of looking, we have found literally zero others like it. Second, consider your eye. If scientists are right, then, the, then this is what they say. They say that the eye evolved over millions of years as tiny random genetic mutations accumulated to enable the development of sight. Uh, that now, now, there's a lot of math involved in, in the calculation of whether that can even happen. Uh, but leaving that aside for just a minute, consider this. The eye is an organ system that is uh, what's known as irreducibly complex. And what that means is, is that all of the parts of the system have to be there at the same time in order for the organ to function. So, uh, very much like this. Uh, you have, if you have all of the parts of the eye there except for the iris, guess what? You can't see. If you have all of the parts there except for the eyelid that keeps the eyeball moist. You might see for a few seconds, but after that, you're going to go blind. Um, <laughs> you have got to have the optic nerve that flips the image around for the, in the brain to interpret it. You've got to, so that you can see the world right side up instead of upside down. Uh, you've got to have the lens. You've got to have a cornea. You have to have a pupil. You have to have vitreous humor. You have to have rods and cones and retina and all those parts that you learned back in a high school biology class. And they all have to be there and they all have to work all at the same time. Or guess what? You can't see. And if you can't see, the development of the eye confers no evolutionary advantage. And therefore, it is unlikely to be retained as a structure and to accumulate over time gradual improvements in the ability to see. Because if you don't have them all, you can't see at all. And so you can't accumulate sight over time. You can't see just a little bit missing some of the parts. You have to have all of them. Just like if you take out the, all of the little staples that hold together a mouse trap, you can't catch any mice. Why? Because you can't set the trap. You can't catch a few and then develop staples later. <laughs> okay. You won't catch any. In the same way, you won't be able to see. You don't have all of the parts there at the beginning. Uh, it's almost as if the eye were designed by God. Which is what I think. Uh, now, consider the nature of the beginning. 
scientists all acknowledge that the universe in all its complexity had a definite beginning at a point in time. And in fact, in fact, before that point, there is no such thing as time. They would all agree. In fact, time, space, mass all started at this, at this singular point. And uh, the, uh, the late Robert Jastrow, who was a leading American astrophysicist, and he was also a scientist at NASA, said this, The seed of everything that happened in the universe was planted in that first instant. Every star, every planet, every living creature in the universe came into being as a result of events that were set into motion in the moment of the cosmic explosion. The universe flashed into being, and we cannot find out what caused that to happen. Now, Jastrow was an agnostic, and so he said, we cannot find out what caused that to happen. I submit to you, we can find out, and we have an answer to the great effect that is the universe. That if everything that we see had to be designed to be there in the very beginning... As Jastrow subtly acknowledges, then we have someone behind that who caused that to happen. The universe is an incredible effect that demands a sufficient cause. And the only sufficient cause great enough is a personal being who designed it to function the way that it does and the way that it is. In fact, uh, if you look at Psalm chapter 8, I encourage you to do that. Uh, Psalm chapter 8, if you have your Bible. This is one of the the great chapters as uh, the psalmist is considering his own smallness relative to the universe and relative to God. This is what the psalmist says in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You know, the psalmist, is it's almost as if he's outside on a starry night, you know, out in the desert where he lived. There's no clouds, really, and you can see a long way, especially in a time when this was written, when there were no cities that had electric lights at night uh, like we have now. And he's looking up, and he's seeing the stars, and he is like, whoa. And he understands the power of God. And he understands, in fact, even in the words that he uses, I had a Hebrew professor who told me that when it says the work of your fingers, you know, the idea of, of it being finger work is it's something that it's easy for someone to do. It's just simple. Just like, oh, oh there's the universe. <laughs> okay. Uh, that is the idea behind that Hebrew phrase that's translated for us into English. That it's just simple for God to just, oh, oh here's, here's the universe. Stars, heavens, planets, creation, hmm, gone, there. Okay? All of a sudden, it's just there. Because it's the work of God's fingers. This is not something that he had to strain and apply effort to produce. And he, he looks at himself in, in light of that, and he says, he, he's pointing out a couple really important realities. That the best possible explanation, first of all, 
or the complexity and the vastness of the universe is that God made it all in the beginning and designed it to function as it does from the beginning. But the other thing he is doing in these verses, and I'm going to read some more of them for you, is pointing out what I call the glory of humanity. Read, read along here a little further. Yet you have made him, that is human beings, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Human beings are at the same time very, very small in the scope of the universe. I mean, as I understand it, there are our earth... Will, will fit inside the sun 25,000 times. And our earth is 25,000 miles in circumference. So the sun is big, right? Uh, but our sun is just one of the medium-sized stars in the universe. And there are the ones that are out there that are so big that 25,000 of our sun will fit inside of them. If you can imagine the vastness and the complexity of the universe. And, and next to that, we as God's creatures are tiny little specks. And yet, God has given to humanity a glory in the creation that is utterly unique. We look at the stars. We developed tools to be able to do that better. We built rockets to shoot up a telescope that we can look out 13.2 billion light years and examine what else is out there. We also reign over all the other living creatures on earth. I mean, how many of you all have seen, seen like a great white shark, like on video or something like that? Right? You've seen those? This is a creature, I saw a video of one of these, and this guy is in a little shark cage. You know, here's the guy on the video, right? And you see this enormous fish swim up next to him. And this shark is like 20-some feet long. It has a mouth big enough to swallow a Volkswagen. And it is immense. And guess what? Human beings have the ability to rule over that thing. To take them and put them in a tank so that people can look at them for 20 bucks a head at the aquarium, right? Um, do sharks put us in a cage? No, okay. Uh, I mean, well, they do if you want to get in the water with them. But, <laughs> but, they <laughs> but we do that for our own protection, right? But they don't put us in aquariums. Why? Because we're the lords of this planet. And we'll have gorillas and whales and sharks and all kinds of stuff in zoos and aquariums and whatever else. And we have been given under God the right to rule over this planet as his vice regents. We bear, according to the scriptures, the image of God. And we have a glory that is unlike anything else in creation, even though we're one of the tiniest parts of it. We have a glory to us. 
And, and human beings have, have more than that. Consider these things. Consider the fact that humans possess personhood. And by that, what I mean is that human beings are self-aware. They have the ability to conduct relationships one to another that are meaningful. That uh, to, to form deep relationships. We have intelligence and rationality, and we can think through a variety of possible choices and outcomes and come to conclusions. You know, animals can't do that. Even the smartest of animals, you know, you can, you can get a dolphin or you can get a pig or you can get a dog. Uh, these are uh, fairly smart. You can get an orangutan, very smart, on a relative standard with an, with, as far as the animal realm goes. And you can do some things and train them to do stuff. But a three-year-old human being is a lot smarter than any of those. And you don't have to train them to do some of the things that human beings naturally do on their own that no animal can do. And they possess personhood. Even the least intellectually gifted among human beings can communicate his or her thoughts and feelings at a level that is impossible for even the most intelligent in the animal world. Human beings possess personhood. And every human being on top of that, as an aspect of their personhood, has a conscience. And by that I mean that every human being has a moral sense, a sense of right and wrong. Now, some people's moral sense is screwed up. Right? And they don't agree that the things that are wrong are in fact wrong. And they might debate with you and discuss with you, no, I think that's actually okay. I don't think that's wrong. I think that's right. But the underlying fact remains that everybody, even if they disagree on what is right and what is wrong, agrees that those are meaningful categories and that we should strive to do what is right instead of what is wrong. I mean, how many of you all seen a mafia movie, right? And, and, every, and there's always this scene in the mafia movie, right, where the boss is sitting the new guy down and he says, you can't go and whack anybody just because you want to whack them right? Because there's a code, even in the mafia, right? I mean, this is an organization which exists to rob, kill, and destroy. And yet, even among them, there's a moral code that you have to live by. And if you don't live by it, you're, you're going to get whacked, right? Uh, there's a sense of right and wrong. Where does that come from? I can tell you, I've been out in nature a whole lot, and I've never observed among any creature that I've ever seen any sense of right and wrong, moral or immoral. It's survive or not survive, eat or be eaten, one or the other, but there's no sense, they don't, they don't sit there and go, hmm, I wonder, you know. I mean, Wiley Coyote does not contemplate the rightness or wrongness of eating the roadrunner. He may fail at doing it, but he doesn't worry about whether it's okay right? He's not contemplating these kinds of questions. And this is something that does not arise out of nature. It can't. Where would it come from? And further, every person possesses creativity at some level. You know, if you give a guy, and let's say, let's say, you know, you have a project where you've got to move 
these rocks from this heap over to another place and put them down somewhere. You, as a person who's doing that job, is going to find whatever you think is the most efficient, effective way of making that happen. Why? Because you're going to think it through, and you're going to go, well, let's see. Shortest distance between here and here is this route here, and uh, I need to invent some stuff to help me do that. And so I'm going to, if I, if I can, I'm going to invent a wheelbarrow, and then eventually that's going to turn into uh, a Cat D11. And <laughs> Right? Why am I going to do that? Because I have creativity and I have the ability to manipulate my environment in a way that no other animal has the same skill set to do. Where does that come from? Where is that creativity and the desire to make things and to create things, not simply to do work, but simply to look at and enjoy? I mean, if you're a married man, how, how many of you married guys have stuff in your house that is not there to serve any practical function whatsoever, but just to look at? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah. Uh, it's not there for, you know, what, what, you know, you have pillows that you don't lay on, right? You take them, and their function seems to be that you take them off the bed to get into the bed, and then in the morning you make the bed, you put the pillows back on. Why are the pillows there? Because they're pretty. Okay? Okay, and human beings are the only creature in all the world that does that, that creates things simply because they are pretty. Okay? Why do we do that? Where does that come from? That comes from God, I would argue. Um, again, none of these things prove, let me say this, none of these things prove absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is there and He made us, but they are a significant effect. And, and, and effects like us requires, require sufficient causes as explanations. And nature, which is the only other possibility, is not a sufficient explanation. It is not a sufficient cause. Because we do and we are a number of things which confer no obvious survival benefit if evolution is true. Now, does evolution happen? Well, yeah, you can see variations and colors and shapes of various kinds of animals that are the same kind of animal. Like there's a difference between a black-tailed deer and a white-tailed deer. There are differences. But the fact is, is that those two animals are very similar. They can interbreed and produce offspring. We call them different species. But what you don't see in any case ever is a bird hatch out a reptile egg, which is what evolution tells you must happen. That kind of evolution doesn't occur. And, and it cannot produce you and me. It can't. We are too complex. Can't produce you and I. Um... Another one, the existence of love. Lots of people have tried to deny, from Sigmund Freud on down, that love is not real. 
that he, you know, Freud said, well, love isn't actually real. It's just the, it's just the cloak that you give to your sex drive. It's not really real. You're just, you, you, you human beings are just taking turns manipulating each other to satisfy your desires. But consider this. Consider the example of, of spouses who continue to be faithful to and love and care for their spouse long after youthful vigor has departed and sit by their bedside at the hospital and watch them die. What causes that? What causes a person to do that? It's love. What causes a, a, a set of parents to go to another country and adopt a child that is totally unrelated to them or to take foster children out of bad homes and raise them as their own? What causes people to do that? Love is what causes people to do that. What causes a man in the military when he sees the grenade hit the foxhole to dive on it with his body to save his buddies? Love causes a man to do that. That he would rather sacrifice his own life than to see those he loves be hurt. Tell me how that evolves. Love exists in the world as a real thing. In fact, most people will give everything they have to experience it for even a little while. Love is real. Where does it come from? The Scriptures tell us very, very clearly. 1 John 4, 18-19. Oh, if you can get there, great. If not, I'll read you these verses. 1 John 4, 14, I mean 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but per- perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. You know what makes a man fearless enough to dive on a grenade? The fact that he loves those he is with. What makes a woman commit herself willingly to a man she will most likely outlive? Love. Why? Because God loves us and He gave love to us as a gift. And it's the only reasonable explanation for the existence of love. In fact, the Scripture says, if I can go a bit further, that God is not just a personal being who acts in love toward us, but that before there was a creation that God existed prior to it as a tri-personal being in a relationship of love that goes into eternity past. How far back is that? I don't know. You have to ask God. And he probably can't tell you because we're time-bound. And he is timeless. Well, how far back did the Trinity exist? Always. Well, how about before then? No, it was always here. (laughs) Right? We can't quite comprehend that. But 
Love exists because God exists, and God is love, and gives us love as a gift from Him to us. Last, last thing, last thing I want to consider is personal experience. And I realize that's the most subjective thing of all. Because you can't access my personal experience, but you can tell me about yours. And many of you, just like me, could tell your story of meeting God face to face in the person of Jesus Christ. As you opened up your Bible and you read about the person of Jesus, you said to yourself, somewhere in your heart of hearts, that is who God is. God is, this, is, the, is the God-man who came to earth, born of a virgin, died on the cross, rose from the dead, saved me from sin. God is that person. And you, when you put your trust in Him, experience the transformation of your life. And you who were angry became gentle and kind. And you who were lustful became pure in heart. And you who were depressed and not at peace, all of a sudden experience the peace that passes all understanding. And you said to yourself, how do I know God is there? Because I know Him. Can I see Him? No. Can I touch Him? No. Can I put Him in a lab and do experiments on Him? No. But is He real? Absolutely. How do I know? He changed my life. He changed my life. Amen? And as you talk to people, as you share the gospel with people, be sure you get to this. Be sure you get to the part where you explain to people if they put their trust in Jesus Christ who died for their sins and was raised from the dead that He will change their life just like He changed yours. Amen? Be sure you get to that. And all of these other reasons are good. And there's a lot more I could give you. I can give you details about DNA and genetic coding and three billion different uh, arrangements of those chemicals to produce you. And how every single one of those codes is written in every single one of the over one trillion body cells in your body. I can talk about that if you want. I can talk about all kinds of other things that show us in the amazing ways God's creativity and His beauty and His glory. But also, remember this. How do we know God is there? Because we know Him. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sprinkled through the universe. As Romans 1 says, all kinds of information about who you are. Even your invisible power. 
and nature can be clearly seen from what has been made because you have made it obvious to anyone with eyes to actually see and a heart that is not in rebellion against you. If we look at the evidence of the creation in an unbiased way, we see the glory and grandeur and greatness of the designer who made it all and made it all for us to enjoy and also to point us to you that we might bow before you and worship you and follow you and be loved by you for all eternity. Father, if there's anyone here, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who has never submitted themselves to you, who has never said, Father, I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. Nothing that I would do would atone for my sin, but Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for me and was raised from the dead to give me new life. And I embrace that truth right now, today. Father, if they've never done that, I pray they would do that right now and that they might experience in their own heart and life the kind of thing that I'm talking about, that you are real and that you love us and that you have made creation to point us to you. And Father, we thank you for your marvelous testimony in nature. We thank you for the marvelous salvation you offer to us in Christ. And we give you praise. And we ask for your empowerment as we go forth and share the gospel with others. In Jesus' name, amen.